Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's focus for Monday, October the 30th, 2023, at 2.17 p.m. Central Time. Now, today's focus, 18 years controlled by Satan, 18 years possessed by a demon spirit, 18 years under the control of Satan, 18 years where Satan is making you suffer year after year after year after year after year after year. That is what we're going to focus on today. Now, trust me, it's going to go way beyond that because there's a lot of theological issues that are attached to this. For example, 18 years under the control of Satan How is one set free from that control? How is one set free? And how does one know if they have been set free from the control of Satan? And when we talk about Satan controlling you, in what way are we referring? Now, all of this is going to come from a passage in the Gospel of Luke. This is going to come from a passage in the Gospel of Luke. What I'm utilizing today, I am utilizing the Catholic lectionary uh, for this Monday of the 30th week in ordinary time, and I'm just using the lectionary. And on a weekday lectionary, we have a reading uh, from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans in Romans chapter 8. The psalm today is Psalm 68, and then the gospel reading for today is Luke. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now, when I decided to use the uh, lectionary today, kind of from, for my own personal devotional time and meditation, I immediately, I kind of got stuck with, when I read Romans chapter 8, since that was the first reading, I just kind of found myself struggling with Romans chapter 8 and kind of just, you know, walking around, talking to myself about it, going, well, okay, well, this creates this problem. And and, and I was trying to work it all out theologically and, and really struggling with it. And then I'm like, okay, well, you know, I... I don't really know what to do. So then, so then I read Psalm 68. I'm like, okay, there's some things I could do there. I looked specifically at the verses that they wanted to look at uh, in the lectionary reading. And then I'm like, okay, still, still not really figuring out exactly how this all works together. And remember, one of the beautiful things about the historical lectionary is the readings, not always, but in many cases, they fit together. Now, the one thing I never want to do is to try to make them fit together. Like, they may have been chosen because someone thought they fit together, but I always try my best not to just make the assumption that they will, but I love to look to see how they could fit together and how they could work together and what maybe is a hermeneutical key that puts them all together. And I, and I just love having fun with that. It's like, it's like a, a hermeneutical puzzle. So, uh, I, you know, Romans eight, Psalm 68, I, I'm just, I mean, to me, Romans eight just pre- pre- presents all kinds of theological issues and I'm just kind of struggling with it. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Psalm 68 doesn't really help. And the Psalm is not necessarily connected. Typically it'll be the first reading and the gospel reading. The Psalm is, is kind of just a part of the worship. Sometimes the Psalm will fit perfectly. Sometimes it has not. Sometimes the readings don't fit together at all in my estimation. Someone somewhere in church history may think they do. But but I always just love the challenge. So I was kind of stuck today, right? And if you look at Romans 8, you look at Psalm 68, then you're probably thinking, well, where does Satan come into play? Where Satan, 18 years? Well, that comes into play when we pick up our Bibles and we go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. So we're going to start, instead of starting with the first reading, we're going to start with the gospel reading. And we're going to start with a gospel reading because I think the gospel reading is the key to help us then go back and try to figure out Romans 8. And then we can see what we can do with Psalm 68. That's the way I'm going to approach it hermeneutically. All right. So Luke chapter 13. First, I'm going to read it from the King James Version. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Luke 13, verse 10. Thinking caps on. All right. 18 years under the control of Satan. Here we go. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. That is Jesus. He is teaching in the synagogue 
on the Sabbath. Now, that's very important. When you see the word Sabbath there, you know, immediately start thinking the Old Testament laws about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And remember, some of the penalties for breaking those laws was death. All right. So you have immediately we're kind of from a uh, a, theolo- a theological perspective, I was, I was going to say theoretical, but from a theological perspective and a hermeneutical perspective, immediately I'm like, oh, he's teaching on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is making a reference, obviously, to the Old Testament Sabbath. All right. And clearly we know that there were very strict rules about the Sabbath. And some of them, if you broke those laws, the death penalty was called for. All right. So, so this is a serious time. And behold, there was a woman. So we have Jesus. He's the he in verse 10. He's teaching. It's the Sabbath day. Very specific rules must be followed. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. Spirit of infirmity. How do we understand that? Well, if I'm reading from the lectionary, Uh, which would come from the Catholic Bible, it reads this way. Jesus was teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath and a woman who was there who, who for 18 years had been crippled by a spirit. For 18 years had been crippled by a spirit. Now, another now I have the actual physical lectionary. That's from the app, the Magnificat. Um, that, that's where I'm reading from there. But if I go to the actual physical, physical lectionary, we read these words. All right. This is how it's recorded here. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. There was a woman there who for 18 years had been possessed by a spirit. So we got some different ways of reading this, all right? So from the King James, let me go back to the King James. It's translated this way. All right, here we go. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. That's the King James. From the Magnificat, that's an app you can download and then you can buy the lectionary for each month for like $1.99. Uh, it's, it's relatively uh, cheap for each uh, issue. And then you get, you get a bunch of things there, but you do get the uh, lectionary. So uh, Luke 13, 10 through 17, this is the way they translate it in the Magnificat. Jesus was teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and a woman was there who for 18 years had been crippled by a spirit. All right, so those are the two separate ways, crippled by a spirit and a spirit of infirmity. Crippled spirit of infirmity. The physical lectionary, again, the Catholic lectionary, For today, Luke chapter 13, verse 10 through 17, it's translated this way. On the Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. There was a woman there who had for 18, who for 18 years had been possessed by a spirit. Spirit of infirmity, crippled by a spirit, possessed by a spirit. Now I have another English translation down here on the floor. I'm going to reach down and pick it up. Right? This is the Christian Standard Bible, and it translates it this way. This is Luke 13, starting in verse 10. And as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit, disabled by a spirit, crippled by a spirit, a spirit of infirmity, possessed by a spirit. This seems to be, obviously, this woman is under control of some type of, I, we, I know we're going to, I, I mean, I think it's very clear, a demonic spirit. She's, in a sense, under the control of Satan and has been for 18 years. For 18 years. Now, when I read that, I know I'm not always supposed to do this, I tend to then go, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. She's been suffering for 18 years and at no point did God decide to intervene, to stop it, to prevent it, to remove it. But now Jesus is teaching. She comes walking into the synagogue and then look what happens. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. I mean, she's suffering. She's almost disabled because of this. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. 
Immediately, Jesus, he doesn't wait for her. He doesn't ask anything. He just immediately looses her from her, her infirmity. It is gone. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So the, the basic situation here is very simple straight and very straightforward. This woman, it seems to be, is suffering immensely for, and she has for 18 years because of some spirit, which has basically disabled her physically. She's suffering physically. She's suffering spiritually for 18 years. And then Jesus just looks, he, he doesn't wait. She doesn't ask for anything. He just immediately releases her. And then you could be going, well, why, why didn't God do this? 17 years ago, 18 years. Why did he wait 18 years? Well, those are always the deep philosophical questions about faith and God and suffering and pain. And none of us ever have any good answers. But immediately it started making me think, well, this, this is an interesting historical event. But I wonder if it's pointing to something bigger and deeper because I think sometimes these historical events can point to something spiritual. Now, we always got to be careful in saying that, but sometimes we look for something in the text. And to me, this just seems like a very interesting historical event that just, she suffers for 18 years, walks in, Jesus doesn't even wait to ask, just boom, hey, you're loose from your infirmity. And then immediately something happens. Look immediately what happens. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work in them. Therefore, come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, immediately the religious leaders are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're they're filled with indignation. They're filled with anger. They're filled with wrath because Jesus broke the Sabbath. They're like, whoa, 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 you could have done this any day of the week and you wait for now. Now, on one hand, you can kind of understand the religious leaders, right? If she's been suffering for 18 years, you couldn't have waited to one more day. You couldn't have told the, the woman, hey, come back tomorrow. I mean, you could have, or not even all the way till tomorrow. I think the Sabbath ends at sundown, right? If it ends at sundown, all she'd probably have to wait six more hours, five more hours, seven more. I don't know what time he's teaching. 12 more hours? I mean, she wouldn't even have to wait a full 24 hours. So for the fact that she come walks in, Jesus knows it's on the Sabbath, then clearly he seems to be utilizing this entire thing to make a bigger spiritual point. I mean, I think the text seems to scream that because immediately the reaction. And now on the other hand, you can look at these religious leaders and go, you're more concerned about a law than you are a human being. But then you could say, well, they care more about God than a human sufferer. Well, you could go back and forth. In other words, every side could justify themselves, right? Jesus could say, well, I care about people. Like, well, we care about God's law. And you're like, well, you should have compassion. Well, you could have waited six hours. You could have waited seven hours, right? Like you you could go back and forth. You could hear this kind of uh, turn into a religious debate. When Christians have these religious debates, you should care about the person. No, we've got rules. We got to follow. No, you should care. And But everyone feels that their side is justified. Right? Everyone feels that their side is justified. But just note, the religious leaders would, in a sense, would say, you cannot be healed under this Sabbath law. I think that that seems to possibly is giving me the theological idea where to take this concept. Think about it this way. I'm going to, I'm just going to pose this more in a theological way and leave the historical account. None of us can be freed from our spiritual infirmity. None of us can be freed from Satan under the law. The law will not free us. We cannot be saved. We cannot be set free under the law. The law will only condemn us. The Sabbath law says, hey, you can't do this. You can't do this. And if you do this, you die. So in a roundabout way, it sets up a beautiful picture. Here's a woman suffering, but under the law, she can't be healed on that day, according to them. Now, you could say their interpretation is right. Their interpretation is wrong. But the point is, the law at this point, the way it's understood is she would not be delivered. It's, it starts setting up a beautiful picture. And then what happens? The Lord answered him and said, thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you? 
on the Sabbath? Loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now he calls them out, you hypocrites, you take care of your animals on the Sabbath, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't do this. Now, why, why did, was there a loophole in the law? Now we could get into, we could go into great depth here about the, the Sabbath laws and like who, did Jesus actually break the law? Did he not break the law? Like what, what is happening here? To me, it sets up just a beautiful picture. The law will always condemn you. The law will not set you free. And just to make it clear, Jesus clearly implies here, whatever all the different translations do at the beginning, Jesus clearly implies the woman has been bound by Satan. And when he had said these things, okay, now verse 17, all his adversaries were ashamed and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. It's an interesting story. And what sometimes those stories seem to be like, so what do you take away from this? Do you take away? Well, see, they were misrepresenting the law. They were, they were abusing. Maybe you could, but I think it's kind of a picture, a beautiful picture of here's someone suffering, but under just the law, you cannot be free. You cannot be free. The law will never save you. The law doesn't save you, doesn't save me. I've been forever, how long we've been under the control of Satan, right? We could not have been set free by the law. Keeping the law, we would have been condemned by it. We would have been condemned by it. We never would have been loose. But Jesus, he took care of it. He took care of it perfectly for her. She didn't need to do anything, which is a picture of salvation. So I, so immediately, I think there's a lot, we could see how maybe some people were misusing scripture, how people were abusing scripture, the hypocrisy sometimes people have when trying to apply the law of God. There's a lot of different directions we could go, but I'm applying it more to salvation and mainly because of the first reading. The first reading is from Romans chapter eight, as I've already indicated. So let's go to Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 12. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So obviously for me, the, th- the, the theological, hermeneutical thing that pulls this all together, the, everything hinges on that she was bound by Satan for 18 years. And the law would not have saved her or redeemed her. Clearly not on that day if they were following strict interpretation of Sabbath law, Right? We, we could get into a whole discussion about that. Some will say, well, no, 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 it, it allowed it. Uh, so, whatever the case may be, the point is she was going to be le- le- left uh, to suffer. Now, of course, technically, she could have just been set free the next day. So that's why when Jesus does this, he's trying to make a greater point. And I think it points to this salvation thing, and especially when you look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 12, because immediately we read this. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, all of a sudden it says, therefore. So let's just kind of go back and see if we can get kind of a a little bit of context here about what's going on, all right? All right, so look at verse 9. But we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. All right. So immediately it starts talking about salvation, right? As a believer, as a believer in Christ, we have the spirit of God, right? And if we don't have the spirit, then we are none of his, right? That spirit is, in a sense, the down payment, the kind of the engagement ring. We are sealed by the spirit, kept by the spirit until the day of redemption, right? The spirit is there to seal us, to mark us as belonging to God. It's a sign that we belong to him because we were bought with a price. We were redeemed. And because of that, well, we now have the spirit. 
And then it says, to be carnally, carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and, and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So them that are in the flesh cannot please God. So, hey, it's drawing this distinction between the spirit and the flesh, the spirit and the flesh. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he can't, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are, we are debtors not to the flesh, uh, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We're not, we don't, we are no longer a debtor to the flesh. No, no longer, we, in a sense, we no longer have an obligation to it. We no longer have a debt to pay, to serve the flesh because we have been saved. We now have the spirit. We now belong to God. Our debt, our obligation is to God, not to the flesh. And our obligation is that because we have been redeemed. We have been saved. Right now, a lot of people could do a lot of things with this verse. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But keep keep going, keep going, keep going. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Okay, 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 okay. Now, this is where I... I got all exercised this morning trying to figure this out. And I'm like, okay, what? Oh boy, this is one of those verses. I know, I know why this would be uh, quoted today in a Catholic church because they would, they would make this very much about a workspace system, right? They would say, uh, they would read directly, um, uh, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Hey, you've been given the spirit and since you've been given the spirit, or as they would say in their theological system of Catholicism, you've been infused with righteousness. You've been infused with power. Now your job is to no longer live after the flesh, but to live by the spirit. Because if you live after the flesh, you will die. You'll find yourself no longer in a state of grace and you will die. But if by the spirit, you mortify the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. So then it's you been, and you've been infused with a righteousness. Now you use that righteousness. You combat the flesh, utilizing the sacraments of the church. And ultimately you gain victory. Hopefully you'll die in a state of grace. Then you'll go to purgatory to have the rest purged away. Then you'll finally get to enter into the, you know, eternal vision of God. You'll get to enter into heaven. That's their system. They make this a very workspace system because listen to the way it reads. Listen, I'm going to read it again. All right, here we go. Brethren, we're, uh, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now we have this idea of dying and living based on what we do. Now is this dying and living physically, dying and living spiritually? But it's very much a workspace system. Now I I see Christianity whenever it comes to, in a sense, think of it by this way, how can you be set free from your 18 years and the control of Satan? How, what is, what does that even represent? Well, I think the 18 years under control of Satan and that historical story obviously refers to her being physically under Satan's control, possessed by a spirit. So she belongs to Satan spiritually and physically. Right? I mean, there's just no way to get around it. The, the both, she's controlled by Satan in both ways. But it's a picture of us before salvation. What are we? We are children of wrath. We are children of the devil. We are, we are not children of God. We are, we are controlled by, we belong to Satan. We're under his control. Now, in so, but how then are we set free from that? Are we set free from that 
and and this way. God steps in. He gives us his spirit. So God is the one who initiates the work. He gives us his spirit. Then the rest is up to us. Now with his spirit, I no longer live according to the flesh. I mortify the flesh and therefore I will live. Because if I live according to the flesh, I'm going to die. So in other words, God does the initial work. Now the rest is up to me and it's going to come down to, am I living according to the flesh? I'm going to die. If I mortify it, I'm going to live. So does God begin it? And then I take up the fight from there, utilizing the help that God provides through his spirit, through the sacraments of the church. That's the Catholic system. Uh, so when you think about it, listen to me carefully. Whenever we get to this question about how are we set free and how are we saved, really there's two prominent systems within the world of Christianity. And I just use that in a very general term. Obviously, we know the very workspace system. The very workspace system is you have to do it in order to be saved. You, that's the very Catholic system. Now, they may give God the initial, the, the, the credit for being the one initially starting, right? Initially starting the process. But you have to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and this or you will die. Others, so there's, so really there's three ways of looking at it through Christianity. I was going to break it down into two, but really there's three. So you got the, you have to do it to get it. You have to do it to, in order to obtain it. The second system is you have to do it in order to keep it, which is still kind of the Catholic system as well. The Catholic system kind of has, maybe it's more the second. A lot of times we say you have to do it in order to get it, but in many ways they say God initiates it through say infant baptism where you don't do anything. And then you have to do, you have to cooperate with it in order to keep it, but we'll just break it down. You have to do something to get it and you have to do something or you have to do something to keep it. There's many, there are many out there in the Christian world, you can go to assemblies of God, many in the charismatic world, who believes you can lose your salvation. Church of Christ, which is very prominent in this part of Texas, you can lose your salvation. How do you lose it? Well, this would be a good passage to, to prove that, right? For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. If you start living according to the flesh and your life becomes dominated by the flesh, you've lost your salvation. So you either have to do something to get it, you have to do something to keep it. And then there's the third, which dominates a good portion of the Protestant world, even some of those within the Reformed world, which you would think would the Reformed world would be so far from this third option because we supposedly believe in the teaching of Martin Luther, you know, the Reformation Day, which is tomorrow. But for some reason, Luther's been forgotten, even though we claim that we'll make a big deal about Reformation Day. Well, we, to me, we violate the basic concept, but I, 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 we'll get back to that in a minute. The third view goes something like this. No, you don't have to do it to get it. And no, you don't have to do anything to keep it because God is the one who saves you. However, if you have it, you will do it. And if you don't do it, you prove you never got it. Which in a roundabout way is saying, if I don't do it, I didn't get it. I don't have it. And if I don't do it, then I prove I never have it. So I have to do it in order to keep it. And a roundabout way, you're playing semantics. You're just saying, no, 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 no. You don't have to do it to get it. But if you don't do it, you don't have it. And you don't have to do it to keep it. But if you don't do it, well, you prove you never got it. So in, in order, you have to do it. But then how much do you have to do? Now, guess what's the problem with all three of those systems? They all will say, you have to do it to get it. You have to do it to keep it, or you have to do to prove that you got it. But guess what all three fail to account for? To what level much must I do it to get it? To what level must I do to keep it? And what to what level must I do to prove it? They all allow you to get it, to keep it, and to prove it without demanding what the law demands, which is perfection. So they're like, you're in perfection and doing it, keeping it, or proving it is somehow a ability to get you to have it. It doesn't work that way. Because God law, God's law demands perfection. So you would have to demand perfection. 
But they say, no, 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 no. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be, so, wait, so imperfection can do it. How, how much imperfection can I have? And say, they never can really articulate it or map it out. They're just like, well, I mean, you'll just know. I'll just know what? Because someone has a lot of good external works that somehow proves they got it. The external works never prove they got it. Remember in Matthew 7 and the last days, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, 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 this? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Well, wait a minute. Then they do all of that stuff. The doing wasn't sufficient to prove it. So Romans 8 presents this really difficult problem, especially in light of the Luke passage where this woman is set free. Clearly, the electionary puts this together. Hey, see, the woman historically pictures what God does for us in salvation. He sets us free. And then the idea is preachers will preach this. You're set free from Satan. You're, you're free. You can, you can now obey God. You can do it. Well, no, well obviously we can't because we continue to sin. The three basic systems of understanding salvation is you do something to get it, you have to do something to keep it, or you have to do something to prove that you got it, meaning you have to do it in order to get it and to keep it. Now, there's another system that says, no, 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 by faith. And even that is not of you, of yourself. God grants you the faith and God does all of your salvation for you. He, all that the law demands, he does it for you. All, everything in your position is taken care of. You are perfect, holy, and righteous. God does everything for you. You're perfect, holy, righteous. Positionally, practically, we still sin. And guess what? I know Christians don't like to admit this. Practically, we're still very much under the control of something. How do I know? Stop sinning. Just stop. Stop sinning. Be perfect. You can't be. Why not? Because you still have a sinful nature. You have a sinful nature, meaning you're still under the control of something. If you're not under the control of it, then you can stop sinning. The fact that you can't get to perfection means something is controlling you and stopping you. Guess what? Positionally, you're not in the control of anything. Positionally, you're perfect, holy, righteous, obedience because of an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. Practically, guess what you're going to see? Failure and sin. We've talked about this a million times. So when I go to Romans 8, I see this. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. I'm no longer, I have no obligation to live to the flesh. I'm not in debt to the flesh. My obligation is to God because of what he's done for me. If I live after the flesh, you shall die. Now, I think, that, to me, I know, I know this is not going to work for everyone. I think the death there is not eternal death. It's not eternal separation from God. I think it works death in my fellowship with God, and it just works the concept of death in your life. When you're living after the flesh and serving the flesh, things die. Relationships die. Joy dies. Security dies. Peace dies. There's, there's a, an element. Whenever we, we go after the flesh, there's an element of death at work. Now, if, if you say, well, no, 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 that's referring to spiritual death. Well, then anyone who lives after the flesh, uh, anyone who uh, lives after the flesh shall die. Well, you have to then convince yourself you're not living after the flesh. But look at your life. How much of your life is living after the flesh? You're controlled by that fleshly desire. You constantly controls how you think and how you react, how you get mad and fight with your spouse or say something to your kids or have bad attitude. I mean, over and over and over, your flesh is dominating. But if we live through the spirit, we do mortify the deeds of the body. We shall live. I do agree that as we try to mortify, as we try to mortify the deeds of the body, if we try to mortify, we're at war with the, the deeds of the body. If we try to mortify that, that does lead to greater sense of peace and joy and happiness. No guilt, no shame. There's a sense of freedom. There's a sense of peace. I, I, look, if you if you state, state this in a uh, a way dealing with salvation, I think I think it becomes. I, I don't know how you make that work. Now I know this positionally, I'm completely set free from the flesh. I'm completely set free from Satan. Positionally, I am free. I'm a new creature. The old is gone. Practically, 
still not a new creature because I still have an old nature. I still have the flesh and I still sin. But I do understand the principle of life and death. A life and death, I do believe is still at work. Now, let's see. Let's see what the next verse says. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Yeah, positionally, I'm completely led by the Spirit. Practically, <laughs> practically, I'm, I'm typically more led about my, led by my own desires. And you can act all spiritual, but it's just the, it's the reality of it. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We have been adopted. God saved us. He adopted us. He makes us a child of God. We are now his son. We are now his son or daughter. We've been adopted. We're now his child. And guess what? We didn't have to do anything to do it. God did it for us. He is in the one who set us free positionally completely. We have been loosed. We have been, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is all true positionally. Practically, we still suffer. We still struggle and we still fall. But ultimately, in glorification, he will remove all of our flesh and our sinful nature, and then we'll be set free forever. It says, for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if the children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, guess what? I reckon, and look at verse 18. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. What suffering? What suffering are we still going to encounter? We are still going to encounter in this life the suffering of, well, fighting against the flesh, fighting against sin, fighting against guilt and shame and fighting and and living in a world where there's pain and suffering. And there's disability and there's disease and there's there's depression and there's all mental issues, physical issues. In a sense, positionally, I'm completely set free, completely perfect. Everything is great. Practically, I'm still suffering. I'm still under the control. Uh, look, the flesh is still there. Sinful nature is still there. And Satan is still roaming about seeking whom he may devour. And But there will come a time. But this present sufferings will be gone. And I can guarantee, and I know it to be true because I have the spirit of God. He is my down payment. He is my guarantee that Christ will one day come and take me and then I will be glorified. And then all of this suffering will be over and the body and the flesh will be gone. And I will be in his, and I will be set free just like that woman was set free. Now she was set free Physically, she, in a sense, was set free spiritually to a level. Satan was no longer going to possess her. That spirit was no longer going to possess her. But she still had a sinful nature. She still was going to struggle with the the desires of the flesh and the lust of the flesh. Just like you do. Just like I do. Just like even Paul in Romans 7 acknowledged that he does. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do are the things I do. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I saw, I serve the law of sin. But under the law, we are not set free. I think there's a picture being put here and everyone runs to Romans 8 and they always, again, you've got three options in Christianity. Your three options are you have to, in a sense, no longer live according to the flesh. And if you, and you've got to do this and this and this. In order to be saved, you got to do it in order to be saved. Others will say, no, 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 no. God saves you, but now you got to do this, 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 and this in order to stay saved or you can lose your salvation. And the third one's like, no, 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 no. You don't do it to get it. You don't do it to keep it. You got to do it to prove it. And if you don't prove it, then you never got it, which of course, roundabout, just follow the circle. You got to do it in order to get it and you got to do it in order to keep it. And I reject all three of those. Christ Before the foundations of the world, God chose those whom he would save. And then in the appropriate time, in a sense, Christ then effectually calls us, saves us, grants us faith, changes our mind. 
And then we are set free positionally. We are made perfect, holy. We can now stand upright. We've been set free from our infirmity of sin. And we we no longer serve the flesh. We only walk in the spirit. That's all true positionally. Practically, I live in this weird this world where if I live according to the flesh, I am going to experience at least the principle of death in different ways. Joy, peace, comfort. I mean, I'm just going to have all the negatives. That, we all know that. Sin and going against God's laws always work some element of death. But if I mortify the flesh, then there's a principle of life. No shame, no guilt, no anxiety. There's a sense of peace. Now, all of that then leads us to the psalm for today. The psalm for today is Psalm 68. I'm going to read it from the physical lectionary. It's Psalm 68, 2, 4, 6 through 7, and 20 and 21. I'm going to read it in this translation. You ready? Our God is the God of salvation. Well, I think you can see immediately how this fits with everything that we just talked about. Our God is the God of salvation. God arises, his enemies are scattered, and those who hate him flee before him. But the just rejoice and exult before God. They are glad and rejoice. Our God is the God of salvation, the father of orphans, and the defender of widows. Is God in his holy dwelling? God gives a home to the forsaken. He leads forth prisoners to prosperity. Our God is the God of salvation. Blessed Blessed day by day be the Lord who bears our burdens, God who is our salvation. God is a saving God for us. The Lord, my Lord, controls the passageways of death. Our God is the God of salvation. All the psalm is about salvation. That's Psalm 68. That's from the physical lectionary. I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to read it from the King James. Psalm 68, so we can hear it this way. Psalm 68, all right, and uh, immediately, this is going to sound really different than than what was just read, all right? Here we go. Uh, I'm going to read it. Uh, Psalm 68 in your Bible is going to be, I'm going to go all to verse 1. They kind of they kind of mix this all up, but I'm just going to read from verse 1. Here we go. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, exalt, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary and families. He bringeth out those who are bound with chains, but the rebell- rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when thou wentest forth before the people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared um, of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who publish it. And you can continue to read all the way through, but it's demonstrating what God has done to redeem, to set free, to save. God, as the the physical uh, lectionary reads, our God is the God of salvation. Our God is the God of salvation. And we read of his salvation in many ways throughout Psalm 68. And we read of God's salvation first in a very historical, physical way, well, in a spiritual and a physical way, in Luke 13. He sets the woman free from her being possessed and from her physical suffering. And then in the book of 
Romans chapter 8, God tells us of our spiritual salvation. We're now a child of God. We've been adopted. We've been set free. That is true of our position. Practically, we still are involved in a fight with the flesh. But ultimately, this present suffering will go away. But in the meantime, we still struggle. Now, I'm going to read Psalm 68 from uh, the Magnificat app because it is a different translation. And uh, they just have it this way. Uh, our God is the God of salvation. And that, and that comes from our God, is, uh, our God is a God of salvation. I think it comes from, um, I don't know where they're, where they're taking it from. I think they're taking it from a verse in Psalm 68. I just don't know which one. All right. But here we go. Our God is the God of salvation. God arises. His enemies are scattered, but those who hate him flee before him. But they just rejoice and exalt before God. They are glad and rejoice. The father of orphans and the defenders of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God gives a home to the forsaken. He leads forth prisoners to prosperity. Blessed day by day be the Lord who bears our burdens. God, who is our salvation? God is a, is a saving God for us. The Lord, my Lord, controls the passageways of death. Our God is the God of salvation. Now they they're pulling all from Psalm sixty eight. They're pulling all they all all from it. Are all from it um, is where they're pulling from. But you can see and you can read all from it and see everything here. I, I want to be able to just read the whole thing, but it would take us a while to read all of these verses and apply it. But you will see in Psalm 68, you will see his salvation. You will see his power. You will see it work. And you see it in Luke 13 and in Romans 8. Now, just remember, much more we could say here. Just remember, you, you currently in 2023, you live at a time that the majority of Christianity understands God's salvation in one of three ways. You got to do something to get it. You got to do something to keep it. Or you constantly have to be doing something to prove that you ever got it. Meaning then if you don't do it, well, you never got it. So you have to do it in order to get it. And you have to do something in order to keep it. No matter how many games they want to play with that language, that's exactly what they're saying. And that's the dominant views within Christianity, probably the dominant view amongst the Christians you know, probably the dominant view of the people you go to church with. They're going to state it in one of those ways. And I believe we're standing, we're, we're less than 24 hours away from Reformation Day. And Reformation Day was Luther saying, I can't do it. I cannot keep the law. I'm, in a sense, possessed, disabled, under the control of Satan. I cannot be set free. No one can help me. And the law's like, you can't do anything. You're not set free. Suffer, suffer, suffer. And Luther suffered, in a sense, under the control of Satan, bound by Satan, bound by his sin, year after year after year after year after year after year. He, and the law would not set him free. He confessed, he strived, he tried, but he suffered. And you will suffer if you look to the law in any way, shape, or form. But then he realized, stop looking to the law, look to Christ, because Christ, by faith, fulfilled all of the law for me. By faith, his righteousness and obedience is imputed to me, and in him I am set free. I am holy. I am righteous because of an imputed righteousness. Practically, I'm still a sinner. So where do I look to for hope? Not to what I can do, should do, may do. I look to what Christ has done. And when I look to what Christ has done, I realize, praise God, I exalt God. I rejoice in my salvation. And then I say, look, I'm no longer under obligation to the flesh. Now my obligation is to one who has saved me and I'm going to seek to save him. But I live in a very stark reality. And that stark reality is the flesh is very present and the sinful nature is there. But if I live according to the flesh, I'm going to experience, in a sense, the pains of death. It's going to destroy my pain. It's going to destroy my peace. It's going to destroy my life. It's going to hurt. It's going to kill. It's going to, it always does that. But if I will work to mortify the deeds of the flesh, I will experience the elements of life. 
Am I going to do it perfectly? Absolutely not. That's why my salvation is perfectly secure. And what Christ has did is I try to work out that salvation practically in an imperfect way. Now you put Luke 13, Romans 8, and Psalm 68 together today. And you see, and I do apologize that I kept reading all of Psalm 68 in my Bible and then realized, uh, yeah, I'd have to try to put all their verses together uh, just so they know that the verses they supposedly put together are Psalm 68, 2 through 4, which is completely different in the King James versus the way the lectionary reads. All right. And then verses 6 through 7, which reads, God settles the solitary in families. He bringeth out those who are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah. And then verses 20 and 21. He that is our God is the God of salvation. That's the verse that we want. He that is our God is the God of salvation. And unto God, the Lord, belong the issues from death. That's what you want to hear. He is the, he, he that is our God is the God of salvation. And unto God, the Lord, belong the issues from death. He, he's the one who saves us. He's the God of salvation. But he saves us by an imputed righteousness, by faith alone. There. You can consider all of that. Today's focus, 18 years under the control of Satan. The passages I want you to look at today is Luke 13. Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Psalm 68, 2 through 4, 6 through 7, and 20 and 21. You meditate on it. Think about it. See how I've put it together. And I'd love to get your thoughts, your interpretation, and your perspective on these very important passages of Scripture that is a part of the historical lectionary that people around the world will be reading today. I would love to get your thoughts and your interpretation. And may God bless you as you meditate and study His Word.